Nope, it's Fangraphs Audio. Carson Stuley, guest on this edition of the program, is a frequent contributor to the podcast. He is also the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. It's Kylie McDaniel. Of interest this week, Kylie McDaniel and I uh, examine some uh, players who have recently been promoted. Uh, for example, Greg Bird, first baseman Greg Bird for the New York Yankees. We discuss not only Bird, uh, but the ways in which plate discipline and power, raw power, interact to inform game power, to inform game power, and how that relates to Greg Bird, how that relates to other prospects. Uh, also promoted recently, John Lamb. John Lamb was acquired by Cincinnati. He was the third player of the prospects the Reds received in exchange for Johnny Cueto, sent to Kansas City Royals. John Lamb recently made his major league debut. It exhibited a, a fastball, an average fastball velocity, not unlike the sort that he uh, he had exhibited before uh, Tommy John's surgery. We look at that debut. Consider that debut. I ask Kyle McDaniel about that debut. Also, uh, Luis Severino, Yankees right-hander Luis Severino. Luis Severino, his slider and the adrenaline effect. Those things are related somehow, probably. Who else? Who else? Uh, Zach Godley is property of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Last year, he was property of the Chicago Cubs. When Kyle McDaniel was making his list last year, he asked the Cubs, uh, people in the Cubs organization, what do you think about Zach Godley? They said, well, uh, he probably does not need to be on your list. He was a 25-year-old in high A or something like that. Uh, Godley, within the last month, has made three strong starts in the major leagues. How does that manner of thing happen, uh, and what does that uh, help us learn or not learn about uh, prospect analysis? Finally, Kylie McDaniel has uh, spent some time in the last couple of weeks both at the East Coast Pro Prep Showcase and also at the uh, the Area Code Games in California. That and a couple of other uh, showcase-type games mark the end of the Prep Showcase season uh, and uh, and will allow Kyle McDaniel to um, start looking ahead to the 2016 draft. Who are the top prep players? Who are they? Kyle McDaniel examines that in addition to a number of other uh, things I've, I haven't named here. Uh, it is also uh, my obligation in this introduction to dedicate some time to our sponsor, our excellent sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Draft. Draft is an app uh, currently available for iOS, as soon to be available for Android. Are you familiar with, for example, FanDuel? Are you familiar with... Draft Kings. This is not much different. It is a daily fantasy game, but it is the first one designed uh, expressly for your mobile device. It is not unlike a. Uh, it is not unlike Words with Friends, except for fantasy sports. There is baseball. There is also football, college football, basketball, NHL. All of these is very simple. What you do is you challenge someone. It could be a friend. It could be a random person. You conduct a very quick, uh, a very quick snake draft. Five players on each team, and then you are ready to see who wins. Would you care to? Would you care to wager some money on it? You're able to. Do that too. Would you like to face Carson Sestouli directly? That's me at Carson Sestouli. Would you like to face the host of this program directly? You can also do that. There's a link to do that. The Fangraphs Audio Post for this edition of the program. Yes, I play the game uh, in part because I'm contractually obligated to do so, in part because I enjoy it. I enjoy competing against a friend, for example, and informing him that I will uh, be able attempt to beat him. It's not a very strong declaration, but I also uh, lack confidence. So it is draft. It is draft is available currently in the App Store. It'll be available for Android in the not very distant future. Play draft. Okay, that is the end of the sponsor message. The sponsor message is over. Also, so is the introduction. What you will hear now is a brief musical interlude provided by Kyla McDaniel, followed by the contents of our conversation. Sangra Sadio, featuring Kyla McDaniel, begins right now. Land is some place I ain't never been. Yet again, space travel veteran. Never blend like the Astro to come around. Never end the initiation. Most times never end these old school letter men. Never been like the Astro. You know the cause. I feel there's not enough of a 
uh, not time sensitive, but time reflective uh, content to the podcast. Okay. And I would like to start next week, mm-hmm. uh, since we've you know taken like a month off since the last podcast. So next week when we have like you know a week's worth of things have happened, do like a little bit of like a roundup. Like uh, here's what's going on in you know scouting and player development. Here's a couple stories, maybe other uh, various topics that we would normally talk about. Just give the you know the first time listener uh, a little context to the things we're talking about, and to the regular listener. Maybe if they don't have all the details, we can give them, you know, a little bit more before we jump into the sort of nonsense and free-flowing conversation. So will this be uh, something that, that I discuss in the introduction, or will we? Will it be the first moments, the first minutes of the program itself? What did you just say? What did I just say? <laughs> don't re- don't refer to the process of produ- producing. I the yes, I know, but 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 I'm talking about I'm talking about logistics here. When, I w- when I can people expect it, to hear it? I would say we do it in the first five minutes of the you and me talking portion. Okay. I submit also that that discussing players who've been recently promoted will also be part of that. Is yeah. that fair? Yeah. That's of some interest, I think. Yeah, I feel like there should be just a roundup because I because I would like I would like this program mm-hmm. uh, to be a uh, you know like a place you go if you're interested in the sort of topics we talk about okay. and not just a you know like I said the free flowing conversation mm-hmm. about. You know, whatever topic Carson happens to bring up that's about this topic, just, right. you know, like, oh, this is also some, you know, more time-sensitive sort of newsy things, even if we don't dwell on them the entire show. And we can we explore in greater depth later in the episode? Is that allowed? Yes, that's the idea. Okay. We'll, give, we'll, give, we'll give context and also kind of notify and then, and then expound uh, in the manner in which we are so good at doing. I'm willing to embrace this experiment. I'm also relieved that we got to it... Uh, we got to it by episode 567. <laughs> well, Carson, the people know what they want, the and it is clear, clearly not what we were doing. No. <laughs> so in, in as, a, as a dry run of this, I thought we could both tell everyone what we've been up to just personally, not necessarily baseball news, yeah. but personally what we've been up to since the last time we recorded, which I think was three weeks ago. <laughs> Why don't you start? Because I've probably rela- related some of these things to the listener. Why don't you go ahead? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're always talking on this thing. Yes. Um, okay, so I'm in Atlanta for your for your first-time listeners. Uh, I went to Florida, uh, first into a bachelor party for a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in Miami, so, you know, pee fancy. Um, then I went to Tampa, which is where the East Coast Pro Showcase was, which oh, is okay, yeah, yeah. one of the big four or five showcases for the high school players for next summer's draft, so uh, 2016 draft high school prospects. And it's basically everybody east of the Mississippi and pretty much all the good ones, uh, all the good prospects, minus one or two, and also including some sort of lesser-known guys that maybe don't go to the showcases you have to pay for. This one is sort of run by scouts and chosen by scouts, so they'll pick out some of those under-the-radar guys to come out. So was there for a week, mixed in some Florida State League stuff, uh, saw a good number of guys. Uh, during that is when the trade deadline happened, so I was rushing away during the showcase to go write up the David Price and whatever trades. And there's a tweet I put up of I wrote the David Price trade using the Yankees' uh, protected Wi-Fi in their stadium during the, uh, during the showcase. So that was fun. Then I went drove home. Uh, made some stops along the way, and then a day later went to California for I think like nine days for Area Code Games, which is the West Coast version basically of of East Coast Pro, chosen by the scouts. Uh, you know, try to bring all the good young players. And since I'm on the East Coast, this is the one thing that all the West Coast high school kids go to. So that was a good one. And they also they also have some East Coast players that show up as well. 
and I also mixed in some uh, some solid touristy stuff of hitting the beach and some cool restaurant and stuff in between all the games. Went to a Cali game, and if you'd like to learn more, uh, go to my Twitter and my Snapchat. Okay, and you also, uh, another thing you did was uh, just after the trade deadline, or I should at least say the non-waiver trade, de- uh, trade deadline, you graded the 58 prospects who were dealt at same deadline, um, including, uh, you, I can, let me run through your, your, uh, your group of 55s. Can I do that? So people, mm-hmm. people will be, re- will be reminded. You caught me, you caught me mid-drink. Go ahead. That's fine. Uh, Jeff Hoffman going from Colorado to Toronto. No, the other way around. Going from Toronto to Colorado. Jorge Alfaro going from Texas to Philadelphia. Nick Williams, also Texas to Philadelphia. Jake Thompson, also Texas to Philadelphia. Uh, Hector Oliveira from the Dodgers to the Atlanta Braves. Brett Phillips. There's, well, there's quite a few uh, big, uh, big-time big prospects. Brett Phillips from Houston to Milwaukee. Brandon Finnegan from Kansas City to Cincinnati. And Daniel Norris from Toronto to Detroit. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty... A uh, strong group of players uh, going to prospects going from one team to another. And you want to know the most impressive thing about that? Yeah. While you were reading those, I muted my end and went and pulled my bread out of the oven and have it all ready to go. You're not going to hear any more beeping. Okay. Yep. Uh, in the, the people do not necessarily want to know, I think, what in your um, perverted sex community pulling one's bread out <laughs> of the oven means. How did you know I live in a perverted sex community? <laughs> it's true. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a gated community. Well, yeah. Perverted There's... gated sex community. Um, you have to ask permission to use the rear gate. Okay. All right. Uh, so that's been a recap. I've, I've gone to Montreal is what I've done. Uh, and I've probably that's, that's been it. there. That's all you're going to give us? I've been there for much of the time. Uh, before that, uh, my wife broke her arm or broke her finger while walking our dog. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've just mostly been, uh, I've been, I've been doing some experiments in, um, in failure. I've been, I've performed some experiments in failure. That's not, uh, specific to the last few weeks though, is it? No, it's not. Not at all. So are you doing, is this like a working vacation or are you like off, off the grid? No, no, no. I mean, I've uh, I took a week off to spend some time in Montreal, and to uh, and to speak French poorly to people, and uh, and to feel shame at my lack of French. I've uh, Jonah Carey was on the podcast this week. Uh, anyone didn't listen to that, I asked him quite a bit about Montreal. Uh, not not looking necessarily for like restaurant suggestions. Uh, those are available far and wide, but uh, asking what it was like to grow up here because it's an interesting city. Yeah, isn't there a famous place that serves like uh, like fried foie gras or something like that in Montreal? Remember mm-hmm. that correctly? Maybe. There... Yeah, uh, we haven't sought that out. My wife does not eat meat, so. Well, foie gras is barely meat. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I don't think anyone has any objections to how that's produced, do they? <laughs> no, it's certainly not the entire state of California. Well, that would be yeah. yeah. Oof. Oh, can we can we uh, can we look at some promotions? Yeah, let's transition into the promotions. Uh, do, we, do we have a, an audio drop for this? Not yet, but we will get an audio drop for the promotion segment. It's going to be exciting. Uh, John Lamb. One, one day we will achieve my goal of turning into a morning zoo crew. <laughs> John Lamb was, uh, I think probably from a reasonable point of view, was the third most promising prospect sent from Kansas City to Cincinnati uh, in the uh, in the deal that sent Johnny Cueto the other way. Yes, I would say that is. 
I'm always hesitant when someone says, like, when someone presents a question as, is this guy better than that guy? And I feel like it's always a trick question. Or when it's like a trade where there's a bunch of guys that are all kind of near each other that you're like, well, it could go anyway, but if you made me pick, I'd pick this guy. Yeah, he's, he's pretty clearly the third guy in a traditional sense. Third, third I, lowest future, future value rating. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I believe it was a 55, a 50, and a 40, if I remember correctly, are the three guys they got. So yeah, the numbers would suggest, even including the scouting numbers, would say yeah. Right. So the other two players, uh, left-hander Brandon Finnegan, who uh, who people will remember from last year's playoffs. Uh, he um, he and he pitched well for Kansas City down the stretch last year. And then also Cody Reed, who um, I think has uh, was kind of a was kind of a mess until this year, and then put it all together. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, and John Lamb, of course, was a, a top prospect at one point. I think entering the 2011 season, he appeared in the top 20, both on uh, the Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus list. Um, yeah, he, he was good. Now, he was a fifth-round draft pick, but uh, was he over slot or regular slot? Or uh, slot? If he was not exactly slot, he was very close to slot. It was 165 in uh, that 165,000 in the fifth round, which is pretty close to slot. Okay, so something happened between that point at which he was selected in the draft and then the point at which he was regarded as one of uh, the top 20 prospects in baseball. Yeah, he was one of those sort of projectable lefties. He's 6'4 and kind of lanky and sat like, you know, high 80s kind of thing. And then uh, within a couple years, he was like uh, 91 to 95. Okay. And as, as typically happens, that will uh, increase the arm speed, so your breaking ball gets better, and then increase the difference between the changeup and the fastball. People are, you know, having to cheat to get to the fastball, so now the changeup looks even better if you can have any sort of, you know, whatever. So he just kind of kind of did your standard arm moves faster, everything got better. He's a dude. Right, right, right. In theory, imparting more spin to, on the ball, which is always going to help it as well. Yeah, uh, is another way. Imparting that. wisdom on youths around him. Maybe not, but uh, but then but then he what he underwent Tommy John surgery and then returned as a sort of a, a shadow of his former self. Yeah, like eighty six, eighty nine, touching a ninety or ninety one, kind of like fringed average stuff. Was in AAA for a couple years and was just sort of looked like an extra guy. And then this year his stuff got a little bit better. It was more kind of average to maybe slightly above at times. And since he's you know AAA, big league ready, twenty four thrown a lot of innings since Tommy John. Like, everything seems to be sort of all systems go to figure out what this guy can do. Right. And he made his uh, major league debut just a couple days ago. Um, it must have been – it was uh, Friday. It might have even been Friday. Yeah, I think it was Friday. And he uh, he pitched – not only did he pitch quite well uh, – well, let's see. Run prevention was not necessarily excellent. I think he allowed maybe, uh, I don't know, four runs. Yeah, he actually allowed five runs over six innings. So that's not excellent. However – he struck out um, struck out over a quarter of the batters he saw while only walking two. The fielding independent numbers suggest that uh, he would typically have more success, is likely to have more success than that if he continues to pitch along those same lines. And uh, perhaps more importantly, he sat at 92 miles per hour according to PitchFX, and that is uh, what is at least a tick or two higher than uh, than he has sat recently. Yeah, and as a reminder, the uh, sort of scouting scale we use at Fangraphs is 90 to 91 is considered a 50 fastball, and then you obviously adjust up and down based on movement and command and all that sort of thing. So that would sort of underline the average too slightly above. So 
it the the scouting reports check out. I always like to see that the what I'm told his velocity was in the minors matches up with what you see when pitch FX can bring it up. Although we've talked in the past about the whole adrenaline effect, which I guess Eno wrote about recently. You know, yeah. In fact, if uh, if no one saw that, he wrote about it in particular with regard to Luis Severino, who also made his major league debut recently. A Yankees pitcher, a right-handed Yankees pitcher. Uh, the actually the adrenaline, the the sort of effect of debuting uh, and adrenaline actually manifested itself slightly differently with regard to Severino. I won't go too far into that. But yes, uh, Eno found objectively that uh, rookies tend to exhibit a spike in velocity. Or, uh, it, um, so first of all, um, in their first couple starts relative to the starts that appear after that, and also just start to start uh, over the first couple innings relative to, say, the fifth or sixth inning. So, it's uh, yeah, it's been borne out objectively. Um, I guess not maybe, maybe it's not a journal. Maybe they want to impress their mothers. That's not so. It's not su- it's not surprising, and yet it's uh, it is uh, nice to see it has been verified objectively. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so you think that probably John Lamb was benefiting from some of that, at least so far as his velocity is concerned. Yeah, I mean, I would bet he sits ninety or ninety-one, maybe maybe I guess ninety and a half would be the uh, the number. But yeah, I, I I would bet he's a little bit higher just because I'm I'm guessing most guys are a little bit higher. But I think that's Generally reflective of where the talent is now. All right. Okay. And uh, for for left-hander, do we do we assume that a lefty who's sitting at 91 miles per hour, all other things being equal, is going to have more success than a righty who's sitting at 91 miles per hour? Yeah, I was about to mention that. So some uh, teams uh, will build in a like they have a different scale for lefty versus righty. So like if you actually take the the average of like a left-hand starter's velocity, I think it's I think it's left-hand starter is like 88, left-hand reliever is 89, right-hand starter is 90, right-hand reliever is 91. I believe that's what it was or something very close to that. Uh and so some teams will have a scale based on those either two or four different velocities so that an 88 to 91 lefty starter would get a 50 fastball. Uh, I choose to sort of simplify it and leave everyone on the same scale, and you can just know that a lefty could potentially start with a 45 fastball if some other things are in place, and a righty generally cannot. So you get like a little bit of leeway as far as what the definition is of a guy that can start using this the pitching grades. But yeah, the for whatever I mean, we could probably spend a couple hours trying to figure out exactly why that's the case, but that just sort of is the case generally speaking. All right. Um, so I, I, I suppose that's promising. Uh, no. Is this uh, do you, is this an, an arc like this? Is that is that one that surprises you? I mean, can you think of any comparable arcs on the top of your head about a guy who has a, a velocity spike early in his career, then has an injury, then returns with diminished velocity, and then maybe shows a little bit more? That that's just seem, it seems like a lot of fluctuation relative I, to other prospects. Maybe I think uh, I want to say Esteban Loaiza might have been that way because remember he came back with that cutter after he was kind of ineffective and figured out a way to make him make it work with lesser velocity. And I want to also say Paul Wilson from that that Generation K thing with the Mets. I know he was a you know a big time prospect and then I believe had shoulder surgery and came back as like a fringy stuff guy and had a decent big league career. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's somewhat common uh, in if you look for the guys that never became what they were supposed to that were in the top you know 100 prospect list. A, a lot of them, if they had say 400 big league innings, probably had some version of a lesser stuff starter career. So I, I would say it's probably a little more common than you think. But the fact that the that like the last act of that is the guy is kind of forgettable would you know kind of define why you probably can't think of a lot of them or even me either I thought of two. I'm I'm interested in in how scouts 
discuss or analyze the cutter, how the, or how they represent the cutter when they're trying to, you know, communicate a pitcher's repertoire. Because I was thinking, because uh, I guess Lamb throws a cutter. He appears to throw a cutter. Uh, he's classified at Brooks Baseball as throwing a cutter uh, roughly, I don't know, looks like roughly 20% of the time. The cutter's interesting, though, right? Because, for example, for some pitchers, that is their, that's like their go-to fastball, you know, um, probably most notably Adam Wainwright. Like, I don't even know if he throws a four-seamer. I think it's also the case with Brandon McCarthy. When they throw, the hardest pitch they throw is their cut fastball. And, uh, of course, you know, among relievers, Kenley Jansen does this all the time. Ryan Rivera, of course, threw that. That was the primary pitch they threw, and it had movement, but it also still had still had that sort of velocity, that sort of signature velocity of the fastball. Meanwhile, um, you have a pitcher like Corey Kluber, for example, who throws a pitch that is frequently classified as a cutter, which has quite a bit of break and is probably on what I believe is known as the slutter the slutter scale. Uh, is it's a pitch that looks a little bit more like a, a slider, and which would probably be classified as a slider if he didn't also throw another hard breaking pitch that just happens to be thrown, you know, uh, with a little less velocity, a little more break. So I'm curious. I'm curious, like when a when a prospect shows up and he has a, a cut fastball, like how much work do you have to do to or what what words I mean on a very basic level logistical level do you have to use to convey what sort of cut cutter this guy is throwing uh, these are all good questions uh, you can imagine uh, a lot of different sorts of cutters if I say like oh it's basically a slider but a little faster and a little shorter mm-hmm. or it's basically a fastball but like a little extra you know like a little bit of cut to the end of it and then obviously everything in between. Um, and there's obviously different sort of shapes to it and things like that. Um, it's it's difficult to uh, you know put it in a bucket and say oh it's this kind of cutter be- because there's sort of an unlimited number of them. Mm-hmm. And some guys will use it, like you're saying as like their primary fastball and it's like oh it's basically it's used as their primary pitch the fastball it just cuts to it so we'll call it a cut fastball. And then there's some guys where it's one of their you know six like a lot of the Japanese pitchers will do this. They'll have like six variations of a fastball and that's one of them. And it's just sort of, you know, like just to be more specific to tell you what the sort of movement was on that fastball. And then there's a guy that uses it basically as a slider, but because it's sort of short, you call it a cutter. Like it, you will hear it used in all of those different ways by announcers and by pitchers. It's sort of, I think that's why, uh, <laughs> admittedly crude way Papelbon created the term slutter it's almost more useful because that at least differentiates one of those uh, sort of ways that it's used as different than the other ones because there's uh, there's at least two and probably three or four different ways you could you could categorize the pitch being used. Right. Well, it must be interesting, right? Because if I think of like a standard report on a pitcher, there's the standard the standard three pitch repertoire, right? Is a is a fastball, a breaking pitch of some sort, and you're thinking it's somewhere between a slider and a curve, right? Uh, yeah. it maybe has, and then you're thinking, well, does it have more, does it have more vertical movement, you know, or does it have more horizontal movement? What's the velocity? It's probably going to be something like a slider curve, and then you have the changeup, right? But then you yeah. have pitchers who, whose you know entire careers are based on the quality of their cut fastball, either as the primary pitch, um, again in the case of like a, an Adam Wainwright, for example, or as maybe their go-to their go-to breaking pitch, uh, you know, which you could say is probably which may be the case with with Corey Kluber. I think maybe for Jake Arrieta too is is another pitcher who uses it like that. 
Yeah, and some guys will have, like, I remember when I saw Alfredo Simone in, I think, 2011 when I worked for the Orioles and he and he played for us. Uh, I would sit behind home plate and notice that he would throw, like, a four-seam fastball that was, you know, sort of straight. He would throw a cutter that moved one way, a two-seamer that cut another way, a splitter that cut the other way down. And I said it was almost like playing one of those, like, old-school, like, arcade video games where you just push the pitch button and then move the D-pad in one of the four directions and every pitch was like 85 to 94. It was like somewhere on that spectrum. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I noticed that there were some other pitchers uh, like Josh Beckett and Felix Hernandez that year were similar in that way, that there was obviously always a very slow curveball uh, version of that, but it was basically they had one pitch that went in each of the four directions. And I think the cutter is used to sort of just give an extra look. And then other times, just be, you know, like Kerry Wood's delivery caught him way across his body and what I call a mechanical cutter, where it's like because your arm path is cutting across your body like that, it creates a cutter even though you weren't really trying to, and it's just sort of a slight variation on a fastball rather than like an extra pitch per se. Oh, okay. And is there any uh, – is the value of it just that it's uh, – it's a, it gives a different look to batters and therefore, you know, it's just a – Compels them to think about another possibility when the when the pitch is coming in. Yeah, and it's potentially one of the you know most valuable pitches because I guess the idea is it's going to go almost the same speed as a fastball, but it's going to move more than a fastball. So it's you know it's like a singer that doesn't sink. Okay. It, it goes it goes the other way. So the, there's the potential for it to be you know sort of the best pitch in baseball, which I guess R- Rivera showed how you could do that. Uh, but there's also like it's actually kind of common with high school players is. They'll throw like a fastball, a big long curveball, and then can't quite throw a changeup or have command yet. And someone will be like, "Oh, throw a cutter. That'll give you a different look." And they're basically just throwing a flat fastball, three ticks lower, slower than the, the normal fastball that kind of got them there. And so a lot of times it can be like a totally garbage pitch that like a pitching coach just tells a guy to do. And uh, you see a lot of bad ones, like basically below the double A level. You'll see a lot of guys tinker with it and see if sort of you know they're their wrist action or their fingers are conducive to sort of creating this pitch. Right. Uh, can I can I ask you about another another prospect? Another prospect who was promoted this week? Oh, this segment's getting longer. Yeah, I know this is. Well, we're experimenting this week. I'm. I think I've done a bad job. I think this is a failed experiment. <laughs> sure. Uh, but we'll. I'll do two more, and then and then we can we can tail back to the East Coast Pro, uh, the East Coast Pro and the Area Code games, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Greg Bird. We, you and I actually saw Greg Bird together at the Arizona Fall Lake. Yeah, we both saw that Bird is the word. Yep. Uh, no, we didn't see that as much. But uh, Greg Bird, is. Uh, we saw him hit quite a long home run when we were there. Maybe during the All-Star game even is when we saw that happen. Yep. And uh, he's a, a prospect, notable prospect in the Yankee system, promoted uh, this past week, uh, not because Teixeira... Um, I don't know if Teixeira was hurt or whatever, although I know Teixeira's in the lineup uh, on the Saturday when we're recording this. Um, but uh, what, what have been the concern? If, if Bird has not necessarily been at the very top of prospect list, what are the concerns with that? And then, I guess, what are his benefits? What is he providing? Um, well, he can make you a perfect poached egg. Okay. That's, that's his main benefit. Do you know what the secret is to a perfect poached egg? What is that? It's stirring. You, you stir and you create a funnel. Uh, in the in the boiling water, and then you you drop the egg in the middle, and it and it uh, this is a way to to help it sort of cohere to it to itself. Huh, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can look up a, a YouTube demonstration. I've never done it myself, but my wife does it quite well. So you just do what I do. Whenever I say something that may be false, I just yell, "Look it up." <laughs> uh, Greg Bird is your, I guess, 
in some ways prototypical sort of first base prospect where it's first base only, can't really do a whole lot as far as the speed and defense end of things. Although he used to be a catcher in high school, so his arms all, arms okay. Uh, big left-handed guy, plus raw power, enough sort of feel to hit, uh, and enough sort of bat control to be a guy that could hit 250 to 270 area. And I think his sort of separator is that the power can show up in games to the opposite field as early as, I think, 2014. It basically showed up when he was in high A and then in the fall when we saw him. Uh, and he also has a patient approach, which I guess we're not sure yet if it will end up being patient as in discerning or patient as in just gets into deep counts. Mm-hmm. It could be either of those. Uh, but I think we've also – still not, I'm not sure anyone's actually done the uh, – the study on the internet, but that opposite field power in games at a young age is very indicative of a good hitter. So if a guy can, you know, be sort of young for his level, hit anywhere near average for the level, and then show opposite field power, even if it's just doubles to the opposite field, uh, that that uh, that I think is a better indicator of not anecdotally, and I think there's some statistical evidence that. Uh, you know, basically his performance at a you know double A or triple A level will maybe transfer a little more easily to the big leagues because that uh, that suggests a sort of well-rounded approach uh, that will be able to adjust to big league pitching, whereas if it's all pull power, that would suggest he might be one of those guys where they just throw a slider away and he flails at it, and maybe his numbers at AAA are less likely to translate. So um, I would say I am pretty confident Greg Bird will be some sort of everyday player, but the fact that I think it may be like 50 hit and 60 power, which would be sort of a 55 offensive output, which is kind of league average for first base, I think it may be sort of a, a lower end guy. And when I was doing the top 100 uh, or top 200 this past offseason, I think I started with him around like 80 or 90, and he ended up around about 120 because everybody that I was talking to was like, yeah, he's hitting now, but if all of a sudden he's hitting you know, roughly league average next year, uh, in you know double A triple A not really a guy anymore like there's nothing else there it's, it's just bad only and so do you want him or do you want that super athletic guy in high A that's only like a level behind Bird that could be a lot more I was like yeah you're right so he's, the fact that he's sort of backed into a corner kind of defines his prospect of that it he can kind of never be more than like a very back of a top 100 or just missing right you but know, but but it could be a very good everyday player and I think he probably will be you know it's one it's what uh, interesting thing you mentioned here that this uh, the relationship between uh, was you mentioned his uh, plate his plate discipline and and exactly what sort of plate discipline are we talking about? Just a guy who takes a lot of pitches, or is he actually uh, is he finding the right pitch to hit? Right? There's a in some cases maybe it's just a subtle difference, but I think that we see it, uh, and it's probably something that's borne out over larger samples. The uh, Jeff Sullivan did an excellent post within the last couple of months, looking at uh, batted ball exit velocity by the by the spot over the plate at which the ball was hit, and it's it and it is um, it is re- revealing. Like you know, pitches that are over the middle of the plate, the average exit velocity is like a hundred, and then when you get to like six inches inside, the exit the average exit velocity is like seventy five miles per hour. So this is like this huge difference in being able to barrel up that pitch over the middle of the plate uh, versus even you know like we've seen i think probably mike Mustakis is the best example of this a guy with good contact skills but not necessarily great uh discipline or who's maybe a victim of his own ability to hit a ball out of the strike zone or at least has been in the past where he was barreling up balls that were outside the strike zone and therefore not hitting him as hard being able to wait for that pitch is um it actually can show up in your power numbers because 
it's not necessarily that you have more raw power. It's just that that's translate. You use this term quite a lot about it, its ability to translate into games. Yeah, and you can also. I remember every time I see the sort of graphic or table where it shows what the sort of triple slash line is for each uh, uh, ball and strike state in the game. Mm-hmm. It's always like shocking to me that like OPS drops. 300 points if the first pitch is a strike for the hitter. Right. And you're like, you're like, whoa, that much? Like, this guy goes from, you know, like an above average everyday player to like a utility infielder just because it's 0-1. And that gives you an idea because a lot of people will, you know, read something I write and be like, oh, you think Greg Bird is a 50 bat? Well, he hit, you know, 320 in double A. He's clearly a six. Why are you being so, uh, conservative? And I was like, well, the idea behind this isn't that I just translate one number into another. Like, anybody could do that. Like, that's kind of useless. The idea is that you're grading all the different things that go into the hit tool, which is obviously some – I broke it down in one of the articles where I said it's it's plate discipline is one of the things. Uh, like hitting tools, uh, like just sort of bat speed and the path you take through the bat or through the plate – sorry, through the hitting zone and uh, just sort of like the characteristics of your swing. And then there's bat control, which is like the margin for error you have in like making contact. And like those three things – and a bunch of sub-things within each of those sort of add up to what the hit tool is. And if you start giving him sort of 40s and 50s at things, and you're like, all right, and he's old for his level, so I'm probably seeing him against guys that are, you know, not quite as advanced as he is, and so it's probably more of a 40 bat. Like, you're not you're not guessing based off of watching a guy hit for a week, he's going to hit 260 in the big leagues. It's you're grading every element of it and then ending up at a number and then just sort of using what's the standard at the big leagues right now. Oh, the average... You know, uh, batting average is 260, so a 50 bat would be 260, or you know, however you figure that out. That's what you're doing, and and so I'm the th- little things I'm noticing is sh- is saying, oh, he did this three times in five games. That means he's a little more likely to end up in that 0-1 count rather than that 1-0 count, which is actually an enormous difference. And that's how the the little minute stuff can change a four bat to a five bat or a six bat and why that's a big difference and why that'll move a guy from 50th on a top 200 to, you know, off the list completely. If just a couple of those things don't quite add up. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's a bunch of tiny little things that you try to add up and you're obviously going to be wrong. And people could go back and say, Oh, Greg Bird, you know, hit the uh, 301 in triple A. This is why you ended up being wrong. I ended up being a 60 bat. But if you were making that decision, like it, it basically comes down to how much do you want to be wrong? Like a lot of, a lot of uh, hedge funds will do this. Uh, like, you know, how how much downside, how much, like, negative on a day are we willing to take? And, like, all right, 10% loss is all we can take in, like, a month or a day. And they'll adjust their investments based on that. So, as I've said a million times before, there's, like, no uh, there's no one keeping me honest going through all of my old rankings and saying, oh, well, here's what you're wrong about. And it turns out through the study I just did, you're systematically low on Greg Bird-like players. And you should rank – like, no one does that. So the – the way you sort of calibrate how you grade these things is based on, like, how you want to be judged. And in some industries, you're judged a lot and can calibrate these things pretty well. In this industry, I'm not judged at all. Uh, but I uh, that's part of what I'm going to do this offseason is uh, bring judgment upon everyone. It's, it, it sounds like... It Including sounds myself. Like, yeah, it sounds like you shouldn't. It sounds well, like yeah, you, but really, I, what, a, what a nice job where you're not... There's no assessment at all. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I think it's dumb. I think it's made the whole industry on the media end, at least, lazier because no one's saying, "Hey, you've." There's been five guys of this type over the last five years. You've been the lowest of all the you know See, publications. See, this is again. This is one of your flaws, Kylie. <laughs> I want to get better. Yeah, but it requires effort. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I would like the idea if I was like, you know, working on Wall Street or a trader and every day that I did something, there was a review at the end of the day. And maybe in one day it wouldn't be a, you know, it wouldn't be complete enough to give me a, a yes or no on what I did that day and how I should use it going forward. But over, you know, a couple of years, I feel like you have some sort of report card. Like, oh, when you do this, it goes pretty well. When you do this, it goes pretty bad. And I'd rather have that interaction than have the, well, politically, it'll make me seem forward-thinking if I put this A-ball player oh, in the see, top yeah, 20 right, overall. Right. But if but this one's on the wrong team or it doesn't have the right numbers or yeah. I haven't seen him, so I'm going to put him lower. Like, it seems like a waste of my time to try to play that game. Like, I don't care how that plays out. What if the alternative is just sit outside in the sun and drink wine with your friends? Maybe with well, if you, if you take out the wine, that's pretty much what I do with these games. Bruschetta, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can sneak some stuff in there, but usually the alcohol. Do you think? Do you think that you should? Do you think you should be allowed to drink wine while you scout? Do you think it would impair you? Uh, the things that I have noticed alcohol makes me better at is talking to girls and playing darts. Mm -hmm. I haven't found a third one yet. Okay, all right. So, so if I'm a professional dart player, uh, then yeah, you could make an argument that I should be able to. What do you think? Do you think it actually really does help you with darts? Well, yeah, because my problem is uh, I have that that uh, that voice inside my head that's telling me to do a little extra work so that there's <laughs> more oversight in baseball prospect writing. Mm -hmm. uh, that guy shuts up after a beer or two, and usually that makes me better at things like darts where I have to concentrate. Okay, that's good to know. All right. Uh, oh, I'm totally drunk right now, or else I would be too busy fact-checking myself as I said it. Let's Finally, let's talk about uh, another debutante. <laughs> he actually had – he just had his deb ball. Uh, his name is Luis Severino, right-hander in the Yankee system. Uh, noted, noted right-hander. Does that seem fair? Uh, notable prospect, notable forward yeah. prospect. Sixty future value on this guy. I'm expecting a number value. three star. So let me tell you the thing that Eno found about him. And I don't know if this appeals to you at all. This sort of information. He found that the, the there was an effect. Is that like over the first half of his start, Severino threw a slider one way, and then I think that the difference was he threw it from a slightly lower arm slot. Over the last three innings, or something of his of his uh, debut. Um, well, this has this has long been the concern with him. I, so I saw. No, him, really, this actually this this uh, echoes concerns that have been. Uh, so expressed. if you were to if you were to pull up my report from the offseason, the last time I saw Severino was in Instructs, uh, what like ten months ago, and he was ninety four to ninety seven with like a fifty five or sixty changeup for like five innings. So like very impressive in that regard. And his breaking ball, I classified as both a slider and a cutter because it ranged from 82 to 91 over that time. And I, there were some Yankee guys sitting around me because it was, it was in, it was in, uh, I guess Steinbrenner Field is what it's called. And I was kind of look at them and be like, all right, that 82 to 84 pitch, is that the slider? And they're like, yeah, that's the slider. I'm like, all right, that 86 to 89 pitch, what is that? They're like, I think he's overthrowing the slider. And I'm like, all right, 89 to 91, that's a cutter, right? He's like, no, he doesn't throw a cutter. That's also a slider. And I was like, does he know that he's making three different pitches that are all kind of bleeding together? He's like, yeah, if you were to see his next outing, you probably wouldn't see that. And, and the funny thing is, so that pitch in some, in some outings that I've seen will cause a dog to bark. Yeah, uh, I know. It's very sensitive so, to this conversation. So in some outings, it'll be kind of fringy. Like, I think when I saw him three years ago, it was kind of fringy. And then I saw in that 82 to 91 Instructs outing, it, it flashed plus like once. But I, it, when it's once, you're not sure you can, re, you know, uh, replicate that. But you know it exists, but you don't know... But the fact that he threw it at a that wide of a velocity like lowers the odds. Like if you threw one out of fifteen that are a plus and you're eighteen years old, they'd be like, all right, it's a pretty decent shot. You can figure that out. If you're twenty two, it's a lower little lower shot. And if you're twenty two and the velocity range by ten miles an hour, I'd be like, there's a pretty bad chance he'll be able to do that regularly. But 
yeah, it's technically possible if the pitching coach was watching that. He's done something like this, you know, thrown a pitch something like that in most of the last couple outings, and they think they can kind of harness that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I ended up grading him as a 50-plus slider, and it sounds like this year it's been pretty consistently flashing 55 and maybe flashing 60 a little more than just once per outing. So, and, you know, then you've got the seven fastball and the six changeup, and I think the command and delivery are, are just good enough to make it all work. So now it sounds like that last question has been addressed, but I think it's been addressed because there is a of consistently average or better quality, not that it's consistent necessarily on its own. Yeah, so so th- this is an interesting question when you see that. I mean, so you're asking I that, that's what I was going to uh, was wondering about is wondering if it's a different pitch, right? And then and then practically speaking, it seems like if a guy can, because you always hear this discussed as a positive, right? Oh, he can add and subtract from, you hear it with regard to the fastball, he can add and subtract from And that. notice that you never heard about high school players, because if they were adding and subtracting, they would it would be because they didn't know what they were doing. Right, okay, so yes, I guess that's that's the question, is when is when do you begin to make the, the determination, or is it you know is it a, an instance of judgment, where you, on the one hand you're saying, oh, he's adding and subtracting purposely, like I'm sure Mark Burley adds and subtracts. I'm sure that someone has said of Mark Burley that he adds and subtracts. Now, does he? I think he mostly. I think he mostly just subtracts. He mostly subtracts. <laughs> How good is he at arithmetic, though? Because you never hear about him dividing and multiplying. Yeah, derivatives don't even aren't even on the table. They're not even Mark on Burley. the table. What's the cosine of? Anyway, uh, but if you see a younger prospect, a less experienced player adding and subtracting, you're inclined to think that maybe this is not intentional. Yeah, you could make a pretty good article title, something along the lines of "When Adding and Subtracting is Less Than the Sum of Its Parts." No, yes, you could. Yeah, there's a lot of like different ways you could work. The One could. Yeah, uh, but yeah, maybe maybe there's like some sort of uh, I don't know, not aging curve, but some sort of idea that you know once you're past the age of 23, if you're adding and subtracting, you probably know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But I guess the examples of guys that are doing that and don't know what they're doing probably never make the big leagues. <laughs> so, so you probably couldn't say, like, oh, if you're in double A and your fastball velocity ranges by this much and you have this many pitchers or more, you're probably not going to have a lot of pitch effects data on those guys because I'm pretty sure they're not going to be big leaguers of consequence. But, so you, yeah, yeah. There, there, there is some sort of uh, – it happens a lot in high school. You see this guy in high school throws both a slider and a curveball. And one of them flashes 60, but when he's throwing both of them in the game, it never flashes 60 because he can't uh, can't sort of locate and consistently have the shape and feel for both of them. And so he needs to get rid of them, which is why you often hear after a guy gets drafted, oh, they're having him ditch the slider. Or, or like with Dylan Bundy, the cutter was so good, he didn't have to throw any other pitch until the big league level. And so they said, all right, no more cutter. Figure out these other pitches. That's always going to be there. And then the problem is Dylan Bundy got hurt, and the cutter, when he came back with less arm speed, the cutter's less effective. And now it's like, crap, start throwing this cutter again. You need to get some guys out. And you get into that weird sort of, uh, you know, that's that sort of uh, escalator where you're trying to adjust based on, you know, basically giving him just enough adversity that he learned something, but not so much that he has to go back to that thing. Or that he's or that he's crushed spiritually. Or when Dylan Bundy's case, that will be out of options next year, so he has to figure it out now. Wait, is he already to that point? Yep, he has no options after this year. So oh, they wow. actually had a decision out of spring training. They could break club with break camp with the team, stay there the whole year. They could then have an option in their back pocket in case he didn't figure it out. But he wasn't quite ready, and so they had to burn that option this year. So that so that that's that happened very quickly because I feel as though there were you know there were questions about him potentially going to the major leagues pretty soon 
Not not very long, I should say, after he was drafted. Relatively well, if you, if, if you know that he has to break camp with the team next year, then you'd want to bring him up this year to at least figure out what kind of role he's comfortable in. Right. And that actually came up when I was doing the top uh, 200 is, I guess one of the things I noticed uh, amongst sort of the 40 future value players, the ones that I overrated uh, based on ones that were sort of traded or moved afterwards were the ones that were either... Uh, out of options or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, sort of big league sort of rule tied to their, or were, you know, picked up on waivers or had a big minor league contract or whatever it was. There's some sort of something like that. It's usually out of options. There would usually be like a reliever, like a Stolmi Pimentel or a Archimedes Caminero or one of those guys where it's like, oh yeah, this stuff, like that'll really work. And, you know, he's still only 25 and, you know, this could be useful. But if you know he has to be on the big league roster, it's way less useful because, the downside is, well, maybe the command's not there, and you can't put up with that in the big league level, and so you, I probably need to move those guys from, like, the middle to upper of the 40 future value area and move them down to the, probably into the others of note, to be honest, uh, which is something I'll fix this year. And Bundy was the only guy in the top 200 where people, I'd send a list around, and they'd be like, oh, you got a 19. You should move him down because he's going to have to be in the big leagues next year, and uh, this ranking is assuming that there's a lot of scenarios where he's not going to be big league ready next year, but he has to be. So, like, it's almost it's almost pre-requiring someone to be mistreated by their team development-wise. Right, so we expect the development to uh, to be affected, to be compromised by that. Is this something that, for is this, a, like, a valid concern to have with regard to Luis Severino as well? You've already mentioned that this this is a his breaking pitch while it ha- has excellent moments, um, has you know has not necessarily uh, it, it does not necessarily it it seems to, yeah it has its moments but it needs to be developed. If he's at the major leagues, there's less of a chance of that happening. Do you feel as though that his development is being compromised by that? Uh, no, because he's also like performed very well as a 21 year old in Double A this year, and then performed pretty well in Triple A. So it was like if he didn't pitch right now for them, he was going to be pitching in the early half of next year. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something to be said for bringing him up for at least a few starts, seeing what he can do, letting him know where he is, because a lot of times guys in AAA that think they should be in the big leagues will sort of get lazy. But if you can go to the big leagues, fail, and then get sent to AAA, then they're not going to get lazy because they know what they need to work on. And the key is sort of for the team is managing how much disappointment there is and you know making sure his, he doesn't go into like a mental hole or whatever, which I'm like we're obviously there with Severino. Um, the other thing is he's a unique sort in that he has basically closer-level stuff if he just goes fastball changeup. Mm-hmm. So especially this year, if they want to say, hey, he's thrown uh, the 100 and change innings. Let's say we want to keep him at 130 uh, or you know whatever the number is, and he's got, you know, if he were to keep pitching his starter, that he had 50 more innings, so we need to limit him a little bit. If he's having some trouble with the breaking ball or some trouble with the command, they can just make him a multi-inning or late-inning reliever and limit his innings and say it's a usage problem, but have that as an out without making it seem like he failed as a starter and we're going to send him to AAA or, or whatever. Like it, that's I guess that's the good part of bringing a guy like this up late in the season is you have that sort of cover uh, to do that. But then we saw with, I guess, what Aaron Sanchez last year, if you don't fix it by the next year, you end up just being a bullpen guy because at that point it's like, well, we know you're useful as a bullpen guy and it might take a few years to figure it out as a starter, let's just take the bird in hand and get a reliever out of this, and then all of a sudden the whole career is changed uh, more than it would have been if you just left him in AAA the rest of the year, I think. All right. uh, and let, let me ask you one more question, not about either of the three debut players, but uh, um, the, uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, recently called up for a three-start stretch a, a right-hander, a 25-year-old right-hander named Zach Godley, mm-hmm. um, which is... An adverb, 
Um, or maybe it's maybe it's an adjective, or maybe it's an, in, an incorrectly spelled adverb. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> Godley was had considerable success over those starts, both from a fielding independent perspective and in a run prevention perspective. He had a 12% uh, swinging strike rate, which is quite good, uh, and he showed uh, decent velocity while also, I think, throwing a pretty capable. I think he has like a decent cutter or something like that too. I believe it's a slider. Right. Okay. So um, he was, but before that, um, this season, he was a 25-year-old who had made, you know, three quarters of his appearances at high A. And I guess my question is, how, if you as a, a prospect evaluator or prospect analyst, of course, you're the lead prospect analyst, how you, if you what are sort of adjustments you make at all? Um, when you see something like that, whether it's with regard to Godly specifically, or you know how you integrate that into the method by which you you analyze all prospects. So I actually saw him last year for the High A Cubs affiliate. Okay. Uh, he was 92-94, hit 96. This is average. in relief, right? Right. Yeah. In relief. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Average. Yeah. He only he had only pitched in relief his entire career up until that point. So it was 60 fastball, about 50 slider, maybe a little below, maybe a little above, depending on kind of when you saw it and you know if if what I saw is indicative of what he was in the future and past, or if it was a little better, a little worse. Uh, and then when I did the Cubs prospect list, I kind of asked their guys, and they said, yeah, it's 60 and a 50, and you know he's old for the level, and it's kind of fringe command, so it's you know seventh inning guy if everything goes perfectly, probably more of an up down extra guy. So he didn't make the list. But I had the notes, and when he got traded, I think it was—I think it was in the Miguel Montero trade. Um, his name came up as like, "Oh, this is the guy they traded for." And I think I think Cameron or somebody was like, "Oh, is this guy worth writing up?" I was like, "Nah, it's like didn't even make the list. It's just ex- extra reliever, older guy." Like, it's, if you go and watch a Double A team, uh, if you take away the sort of like matchup sidearm lefties and those sort of like trickster guys, and you're just going with the conventional right-handed reliever, a guy with a 60 fastball and a 50 slider and fringy command, it, that, that's like replacement level. Like that's, that's what everybody is at that level. And he was at high A last year and was 24. So I was like, okay, it's extra guy. Uh, and then if you look at his numbers this year, he went back to high A uh, as a starter with the Diamondbacks and had similar numbers, you know, a little worse, but he was a starter. And then went to double A as a starter and had not very good numbers in a few starts. And then went to the big leagues and had better numbers than he did in double A as a starter, as a starter in the big leagues. And I, I don't know if you chalk that up to the scout that scouted Godley having some history or noticing something or the player development people doing something or the Cubs missing on him or he just happened to have two good starts. But this is the sort of performance that if after I saw him and, and I'm told, yeah, what you saw that night at high A is ridiculous of what he is, I'd be like, yeah, this guy will probably reach the big leagues, but he might also be a reliever that throws five innings and never does anything else. So he's, like, basically already beaten expectations at that level. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so it's like, you can discount it and say it's not going to last, but I was already wrong, so <laughs> so I don't know what to tell you. Well, it wasn't that you were wrong. You were you, you made an evaluation. I think everybody was wrong. Right. Yeah, even the Cubs were wrong. They were like, yeah, you don't have to put him on there. It's not that big of a deal. Right, yeah. I, I, I guess, so, so do you make an adjustment, or do you just say, this is... This is an inevitable. Uh, this is this is something that this is an inevitable outcome when you're attempting to, you know, uh, gather and digest information about thousands of players. Well, and I'm looking at his pitch effect stuff. So he is sitting uh, like 90-93, hit 94. So he's down a tick or two, mm-hmm. which you would have expected, and is throwing a curveball and a changeup and not throwing a slider. 
So he's basically a different pitcher than the one I saw because it's, I would imagine, less effort, better command, less velocity, and then rather than just a slider, he's throwing a curveball and a changeup, and it looks like a sinker, which he wasn't throwing when I saw him. Right. So I'm assuming that is a uh, we get a fringy prospect. All right, that guy seems fine. He throws hard. Maybe we can work with that. And maybe maybe a scout saw something like uh, he threw he threw an accidental curveball once that seemed okay, or I saw him throw one changeup and it was fine. Let's try something. And then it turned out that I think the development people probably get the majority of the of the thumbs up to make something out of this. And and I know the question I ask when I see something like this is, oh, so basically every generic double A starter could throw you a couple of big league starts, which is obviously not true, but that would appear to be the conclusion. Because there's no way, like I think I wrote up 60 players with the Cubs system or something like that, and he didn't like I brought him up to Cubs guys, and they're like, yeah, he's just extra guy, um, and they know him better than anyone. So at some level, this is uh, like I remember Dave Cameron wrote something about I think it was Tanner Rourke saying that uh, scouts are not very good at knowing the upside of a player. If a guy with you know averageish stuff can be this good, then that means almost anybody could be this good. Yeah. Yeah, and so like this guy, like not even worth bringing up in the top fifty of the Cubs system, could do this. Then could anybody do this? Like I, I guess they could. I, I yeah, I, it's it's one of those weird. Like there's another story uh, when James Shields picked up his like super duper changeup. It's probably was an eighty at some point. Uh, he picked it up in the minors, and he was like one of those sort of like uh, kind of projectable, kind of good command, kind of average stuff. Like a guy to keep an eye on, but you know probably four starter at best, maybe probably less than that. And they just started throwing a 70 changeup. And it's like, should the scout that was watching him in double A before he did that know that he had the capacity to throw a 70 changeup? Or, or like, how would you know that? It just, or Eric Gagne, like, you know, setting aside that some people speculate about where his arm speed came from. But the fact that he just sort of learned that changeup after having not had it, uh, regardless of what the arm speed was, just that pitch came out of nowhere. If you saw him the year before that happened, would you have written, like, oh, I could probably throw an 80 changeup? I don't know. Like at some point, it's just that's just the vagaries of watching a player and not knowing what he could possibly do. And this, I think, this even goes for amateur players. Where you're like going into the house, you're talking to the family, you're scouting the kid over multiple years, you coach him on teams, you've seen him play twenty times. Like you should know everything about that player. And that that sort of thing, like Mike Trout was turning as a third rounder for a bunch of teams, and they had that level of access to him right before he took off, and they saw a third rounder. So I think that just sort of shows you how random baseball can be and how. I, I guess to not take those examples and conclude that scouting is useless, just know that there's always going to be stuff like that happening. Right. And it should be noted with regard to Godley, too. It does seem as though he's throwing a cutter somewhere between 30 and 50% of the time, depending on... Uh, so, yeah, maybe he's used. the maybe he's the example of the guy that didn't throw a cutter, and someone's like, hey, try a cutter. Oh, are you really good at this? Right. <laughs> hey, and, you're, and you're different now. Now, you mentioned that you, that you saw a slider, so maybe it's a... Comp- you, sometimes you hear about guys... Who you know they they change the the slider grip a little bit whatever and it you know now it's more of a cutter I mean whether it's a you know it could be something that he called a cutter before you know obviously there's some gap between what a what a pitcher calls a certain pitch and and then how it's perceived either by uh, you know pitch effects or by other batters themselves or by scouts but anyway good job uh, good job Zach Godley. I guess. Yeah, and I, and I should also say there is, are some teams that uh, try to sort of embrace this randomness. So, like, I know of at least one team that intentionally tries to draft a couple conversion guys every year. So, you know, guy with a 60 arm that can't really hit playing third base at, uh, you know, NC State. Let's take him in the 30th round, have him go on the mound, see what happens. Mm-hmm. Probably they've seen him throw a bullpen before, have some idea that he'll be in the 90s at least. 
but they're basically saying, like, we know random stuff's going to happen. We could take some guy that's been pitching his entire life that's a 30th round pick, or some guy that's never pitched that could be way, way better than him, and they're probably both going to be useless. But let's, you know, try to embrace the randomness and take the high-variance guy, and maybe we'll end up getting something out of it. Right, that he just might have one of those weird 70 or 80 pitches in his arm somewhere. Yeah, and, and nobody would know, whereas the guy that's been pitching his entire life and never hit, we know it's probably, well, not know, but, like, we're much more certain that that's not going to come out if they haven't figured it out yet. Right, 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 right. Well, Kenley, and that, of course, Kenley Jansen was a conversion, was a conversion, right? Uh, yeah, and Carlos Marmol. There's been a bunch of hard-throwing relievers that uh, were position players. Right. Uh, and we'll say that there's one other topic that kind of comes out of that if you didn't have anything else to bring up. No, do it. Yeah. No, I'm done. I'm done forever. Yeah. yeah, I know. So there was, uh, there was a conversation I had with a team, I think two off seasons ago, uh, where they were saying, all right, let's say hypothetically you're, uh, you're not looking great at, I don't know, first base, like a, like a position where it's easy to get extra guys. Uh, and you're trying to sign some non-roster invitees for spring training. And you have sort of like three that you can choose from and you can only sign one of them because, you know, they're going to be sort of the expensive kind of big league time sort of guys. You can only afford one of them. Do you take the guy that will almost certainly give you like a, uh, I don't know, let's say like league average Woba is like, you know, or well, I guess we'll use WRC plus. Let's say this guy will almost definitely give you like a 95 WRC plus where he's like usable, but obviously not a starter, but is like, you know, a big leaguer of some caliber. Are we talking, uh, is that James Loney? Is that James Loney right now? <laughs> Is it, I mean, it, might, it might be now, but he's being paid like he's more than that. Right, okay. But yeah, something like that where like you could argue that guy if he's really good at other stuff or uh, a good defender or whatever could be one of the third, the 30th best starter, but it's probably just a backup. But if you're going to be in last place and you're just trying to find a cheap first baseman, that's the guy you're probably going to run out there. Mm-hmm. You know, think like the Astros two years ago. Um, so do you want that guy? It's almost definitely going to be like a 90-95 WRC plus, like usable at some level, but could end up just being like sort of a bench bat that embarrasses you as an everyday guy. Or do you want the guy that, uh, you know, say like your projection system spits this out, could be a 70, which means, you know, release, uh, or send to AAA, or a 115. Obviously the 115 would be, you know, above average everyday first baseman, but very unlikely. And you can only sign one of them. So one of them, you get a guy you're not excited about that you're probably always trying to replace, but it'll, you know, not embarrass you. Or the guy that you might have to release and go find another one, or it could be kind of decent. Which one do you want? And we both agreed, well, if you're looking at a non-roster invitee that costs nothing, you want the guy that has the chance of being a 115. Because then you could get basically a free starter, and then if he's, especially if he's in his, you know, controllable years, you get him for almost for free a couple more years. And maybe he ends up sucking a year later, but if you're smart enough to notice this coming, you can probably trade him for something. And so you're basically creating value out of nowhere with almost, you know, you're basically getting nothing out of the guy that's definitely going to be a fringe guy. Whereas this guy could also give you nothing, or you get some upside. And at that level, when it's very, low investment, it seems obvious that you do that. And then he started giving us other examples, like, well, what if you're talking about, like, a $70 million free agent? And it's, like, maybe not quite as broad as a gap, but that's sort of the general idea. Do you take the... And at some point, you're like, well, for $75 million, I don't want any chance of having a zero. Like, I want to make sure I get a guy I can run out there, at least. And then try to, you know, manipulating those numbers, trying to figure out where you would stand. I think that is an interesting question, Obviously for, for the draft and things like that, where you're talking about, you know, do I want certainty? Do I want quick to the majors? Do I want upside? Well, how much certainty are you going to have with this upside guy? I think it's more interesting at the big league level when we're talking about, I feel like Zach, Zach Godley, like as, uh, let's say he, you know, was a minor league free agent and you look at him versus, you know, say guy that started in AAA the last few years to look at those two guys as possibilities and wh- which one do you want? 
uh, and and how do you value those things? And if you're say making a with a future value or some sort of where you're giving a dollar amount or whatever, uh, this guy's value, uh, how would you based on the type of player, the position, the quality, how do you value the boom and bust versus the sure thing? Uh, how do you factor in money? Uh, all those sorts. Of, I don't know. I feel like it's a very interesting question that I have no answers to, but I don't feel like it's talked about a lot. Yeah. But, uh, I assume teams are do, uh, have some sense of w- what they're looking at in terms of uh, looking at a player's up uh, his you know his his possibility of reaching extreme outcomes uh, relative to the, the, the possible the most likely outcomes. Yeah, and I think the problem is, you, I mean, you'd like to ideally have uh, some sort of automated program that can consider all the things you would consider. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when you look at sort of finite bench spaces and all of these different, you know, uh, inputs that I would say, it's kind of hard to adjust for all of those. And so at some point it's just a human saying, you know, well, I'd rather have this guy, which is probably based on the last conversation you had, you know, the team president about, oh, your job's in trouble. or Like, those are the sorts of things that I think will drive those decisions more than, you know, ideologically. Like, I guess we'd like to think politicians, what they think actually is what happens, but it's usually an amalgamation of a bunch of other stuff that doesn't have to do with what they really think. Um, and so when I had that conversation with this guy with the team, I was saying, well, you know, that's how they price options in the stock market is the idea is you're buying the opportunity to buy a stock at this price. And so if the stock, you know, shoots into at the very end of your window, shoots into that price, then you get it. And if it's, you know, what they call well out of the money option, which, you know, means like you have the right to buy it a hundred, but it's at 75 and you got like a day, it's not going to jump 25 points. Um, when you're pricing an option, there's like a formula you use. Volatility is seen as a good thing because you're hoping it gets to 100. So if the stock at 75 is equal chance of going to 50 or 100, that's worth a lot because you got a coin flip of making a ton of money. Um, but the uh, but the one that's very steady, like that's not going to help you at all if you have a way out of the money margin. So it, that was another. We had a long conversation about how you could use some sort of stock market sort of uh, metrics and things like that. Uh, to apply them to players and sort of ended up on that as, oh, this is where you can use the uh, options pricing formula to try to to try to figure out uh, how to price these guys properly, which, again, I'm not sure there's an answer, but I feel like that may lead you down the right road. This is a uh, – what you this is a – you're an idea man, Kyle and Daniel. I think that that's what we're finding. It's, it's true, yeah. If only I could convert that into power in games. Right. If only – <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm talking to you on a computer. Yeah, you are. Yeah, Kylie. Uh, let's see. We we're going in theory. We're going to discuss both the East Coast Pro and Area Code games. We have been recording f- for over 50 minutes. We've actually been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> is this is this uh, angering your wife? No, no. She's out. Uh, she's out doing something. Yeah, I believe gallivanting is what women do. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, she's actually – she's at a language exchange. She's currently at a French-English language exchange. Wait, what is that? You uh, you just talk to each other and learn languages? Well, some people are there who know English better. Some people are there who know French better. Oh, I thought she was selling her language, and I was going to say thanks, Obama. Thanks. Yeah, you could say that. Which <laughs> language should she be selling English? She would yeah, be well, exporting English to France, to Quebec. And then, and then trying to sell our jobs to the French. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Oh boy. Carson, you're, you're, you're walking on ice right now. Do you have any bull- – can you present your experience at the East Coast? Can you digest it into one or two notable 
points? Yeah, so we'll, I guess we'll just talk about the, uh, the general. Well, we've talked about the idea of what these showcases are like. So if, yeah, I'd, I feel like we should maybe tag these podcasts better. So if we say like, oh, go listen to episode, you know, 487, it's where I talk about what showcases are like. Where, all right, so East Coast Pro is either six, I think it's eight teams. Uh, each represent basically like the territories of area scouts. So like, uh, Florida, uh, below the Panhandle and Puerto Rico are a team. Like the Panhandle and Georgia are a team. Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and yeah, I think that's what team. And then you know you can kind of guess how the other ones kind of play out like that. So, um, so who 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 puts the teams together? So the scouts from these areas have uh, they have workouts uh, in each area. Major league scouts. Yes. So oh. like for instance, there was uh, about an hour north of Atlanta, there was the uh, Georgia Panhandle team kind of worked out, and so you know you might have like 50 kids there, and like 10 of them probably have already been given spots, but you're just gonna have them come work out and kind of see them play. And it's a chance for these kids for, you know, basically for the, a drive up to Atlanta or over to Atlanta or whatever you get seen by scouts. Um, and then you sort of pick the team. And like I said before, in the part that got cut out, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the scouts will, they do this and the kids don't have to pay anything, unlike some of these other showcases where the kids have to pay. Um, and then the scouts actually pay to get the, you know, the rosters and all that kind of thing. And sort of the, the obviously the teams are sort of paying through the scouts to sort of put on this event because they like the event. And so the idea is some of these maybe lower income, uh, often multi-sport, uh, players that can't afford to go to a showcase or maybe could but don't want to because they'll probably get seen anyway. Those players get invited because the scouts kind of pride themselves on bringing all of the good players from the area, not just the ones that sort of play on travel teams and the things that typically cost a lot of money. So the East Coast Pro teams will typically have pretty much everybody east of the Mississippi high school that's any good. And every now and then maybe there'll be a pitcher that doesn't come because, you know, he doesn't want to pitch at every single event. Uh, but, you know, pretty much all, all the right guys are there. And the Georgia and Florida teams were crazy loaded this year, uh, which I think is another indication that once again, Georgia and Florida will be loaded again this year for the draft. Um, and yeah, I guess I would say the, the top couple guys, uh, Jason Groom is a left-hand pitcher. We talked about him on here before. Oh, he's 6'5 yeah. or 6'6. Six, six. Uh, I think he's still 16. He'll be 17 on draft day and for, I think, another month or two after. Uh, very easy delivery, uh, very good command, uh, change-ups at least average, breaking ball. Sorry, is he eligible for the next draft? Yeah, he's next next summer, 2016. Oh, okay. But he's still going to be rather, rather – he's going to be on the young side for it. Yeah, he, he he would be aged like a lot of 2017 players will be aged. Okay. Um, but, yeah, he's 92 to 95, will touch a 6. I think he's touched a 7 before. He'll flash a plus breaking ball, average or better command and change up. He's 6'6", six, six, he's young. Like, it's it's pretty much all the stuff you're looking for. It's not it's not quite Brady Aiken, uh, but it's definitely in the general area. It's, I mean, it's, I'd say different than Brady Aiken. You could argue he's better, but I, I think it'd kind of be split opinion. Um, and then I'd say that, and so he was sort of the best, uh, the best pitcher at East Coast Pro and this, uh, arguably the best pitcher in the draft, I guess. Uh, and there's a handful of hitters, uh, there's a one kid in particular named Will Benson from the Atlanta area that, uh, a lot of times when you watch these players for the first time, you try to think of comparables in your head for like, oh, this guy's sort of like that guy. And if he's from the last few years, you could be like, oh, he'll probably go in the same range as that guy. Like it kind of gives you a good guide for thinking about the player because you're trying to think about like a hundred players at once. So having shortcuts is useful. Uh, the player he will be compared to, uh, nonstop is Jason Hayward. Uh, he's almost exactly like him. He's like 6'5", 205, plus runner, plus power, left-handed, from Atlanta, similar kind of swing, although Benson keeps changing his swing. Yeah, sorry, and, say his name again. What is it, Benson? Will Benson. Will Benson. 
Uh, and so he's going to be compared to him, and he's from the same area, and he was very good at this event. And the only problem is he keeps tinkering with his swing mechanics, and currently he has his hands down like where Kyle Ripken had his hands, uh-huh. like kind of flat, flatten the bat out and has his hands down low. But before that, he had them too high. And so it, all the scouts are like, I can't get like super into it because at this point, if a guy throws like a you know belt high fastball that he could crush, his hands as he's swinging may end up being lower than that and swinging up at it, which is obviously bad. But his hands were too high before, uh, so we'll imagine he'll end up somewhere in the middle if he can kind of get a little bit of good instruction. And this is the kind of guy that goes in the top ten, but because there's like a little bit of a question on the bat, just kind of dialing all that in, may end up going a little bit lower. Uh, but I mean, Jason Herrod, I think went fourteenth or thirteenth, and probably should have gone in the top ten. It was seen as slipping on draft day. So he's he's very interesting, and he's going to be compared to him nonstop. And if he can kind of dial in the hitting mechanics and really hit this uh, this spring, uh, or I guess this fall, there'll be the event in uh, Jupiter they go to every year. Uh, it could be a top five like kind of guy. Um, so I think those are the two sort of big standouts. Um, and then area codes is sort of the flip side, which would be the west of the Mississippi teams, although they've expanded to include a northeast and southeast team. The northeast team brings most of the good players from the northeast. The southeast team just brings, like, you know, a handful of southeast players. Obviously, the southeast, if they actually brought the very best players, would probably be the best team there because, uh, like, SoCal is one team, NorCal is a team, Pacific Northwest is a team, uh, Four Corners is a team. Uh, and so SoCal is usually the best team there, and this year specifically was, like, a very good year for them. Uh, the SoCal outfield had three guys that might all go in the top half of the first round. Like, <laughs> that's how good their team is. Mm-hmm. So they had Avery Tuck and right field. Uh, was, I'd say probably the third best of those three. Uh, Mickey Moniak, uh, in center field and then Blake Rutherford in left field. And to give a little context, before the summer started, uh, I, I wrote up all these prospects, uh, for the draft that we knew about at that time, which is obviously just some of them. Uh, but said this past year's draft with, uh, you know, Swanson and Rogers and Tate and all those guys, uh, was seen as not having the super high end players and on my grading scale had two fifty fives and that was it. And that this upcoming a year from now's twenty sixteen draft looks like it might have seven or eight players uh that would be at that level or even higher. Uh and this off season or the summer showcase season, those players haven't exactly played as well as we thought they would. They may eventually get back to that level, but some some of those seven or eight guys have kind of struggled. Uh, however, uh, Blake Rutherford was in that group and is still in that group. He's, uh, sort of a center field, right field tweener from Southern California. Above average power, above average bat speed, hits like crazy in games. It's been one of those guys you've seen showcases like three years in a row, has hit everywhere, and was probably the best hitter at area codes. And I know we've talked about on here when there is a high school hitter that has premium tools, often up the middle sort of tools and performs and we've seen him for three straight years and he's been a guy we've known for a long time like when there was when there were 2016 draft rankings three years ago he was probably in the top five then um those guys have very good track records and that is part of the reason why the process of drafting high school players has gotten much more efficient um that more of the guys that end up being good from a high school class are signing at high picks uh is because of that process and that player and Again, as we've said before, often there will be college players that pop up in their junior year, and we have you know six months of history with them. And Blake Rutherford, we've got at least two years of history against the very best players that are his age or a couple years older, and that's often more useful, which is which is why teams are more comfortable taking high school players in the top ten than I think maybe they used to be. Right. Uh, but yeah, I feel like it's a pretty good overview of the sorts of players that we're at. Oh, and I guess one other guy, uh, Riley Pint. So that was the other pitcher I was referring to is Riley Pint. He's from Kansas. Uh, he's one of those six-six lanky uh, high school righties, and he hit a hundred miles an hour on my gun uh, at area codes. 
uh, it was like 98 point something on TrackMan. And some guys around me had 99s. I got a 99 uh, and then had like three or four 98s. You can quibble on the velocities if you you know really want to be a stickler. Uh, bottom line, he throws really hard. And he was known as probably, I think I had him as the number two guy in the class coming into this year, even though I hadn't seen him pitch yet. He'd been very hard to see. Uh, but people had run into him, said, yeah, what, what, what he did at that one event, pe- people barely saw him at is what he did this spring. He's really good. But this entire summer, he hadn't been able to throw a strike basic, you know, regularly. His breaking ball, he couldn't throw it consistently. And then at area codes, he did everything right. He was 93 to 96, hit 98, 99, 100, whatever number you want to use, uh, and was throwing a 60 or 65 breaking ball and the changeup flashed average. And you're like, all right, this, I said before the summer it'll be uh, Pint, Groom, and Bergner, uh, another high school pitcher. The three guys we're going to have to battle between who the top one is and could end up going 1-1, one, one, one of those three. Bergner is sort of falling apart. His arm action changed. His velocity's tailed off. He's more of a you know late first, second, third round kind of guy now. Uh, but Pint uh, regained his status. Groom has held it the entire summer, and they are two high school players that will be in the conversation uh, for 1-1. One, one. You'll hear a lot more about comparing and contrasting those guys for the next year. Cool. That's 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 good information. It's compactly compact information, succinct, well delivered. I, like uh, well, I feel like I just went on like a fifteen minute monologue. But the, so for the people that are more interested in like the uh, you know give me twenty names for my fantasy team, uh, you, you snarling masses. There will be updated draft rankings coming soon. Actually, as we're recording this, I believe the the first of the two uh, All American games that are on TV, the Under Armour game, I believe is happening right now, and then the Perfect Game All American game is tomorrow. And once those two end, summer showcase season is over. And at that point, all the scouts have had all, all the information. They've gone to all the events. I've been to, I think, all but one of them. And then I'll start comparing notes. And so I would guess, like, probably three weeks from now, I will have a very big draft rankings update, and you better believe it will be sortable. Is that going to be uh, – what? because what, last year you did a, what, entirely too early – Entirely too early draft rankings for 2016. But you've already done draft rankings for 2016. But we're still too early. <laughs> How early are we? Is it is it way too early? Is um, it- so I did draft rankings, I think, in October last year after Jupiter. Yeah. Uh, I think it was ridiculous. Or no. I think it was just really early. And then right, right uh, after, or maybe right before the draft, like a month ago, I did what Dave Cameron uh, changed my title to then be ridiculously early mm-hmm. <laughs> for 2016 and 2017, which were a year and two years early, respectively, in the same order. Now, what did you call it originally? Uh, I think did, it was ludicrously early. <laughs> wait, did you, you did you use ludicrously? I, I believe I may have. Oh, um, and he changed and then, it to ridiculously, huh? I think I think that is what happened. You see, I don't this know. is why it's good that I'm doing more of the day-to-day <laughs> editing now, because ridiculous. Early is not as good as ludicrously early. It's true. There's a bit well, of a of a dissonance that I don't care for in ludicrously early the the s sound. But other than that, ludicrous is a great word. One I've now moved on from both Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and uh, Festivus to now celebrate Ludicrousmas. Oh. Yeah, especially true. in Atlanta, it's it's kind of the the holiday of choice here. That's true. Yeah, and also your mother's. Or grandmother's favorite rapper, Ludacris. <laughs> so, so I guess I'll say now. So last year, I believe my rankings went uh, like October, and then I think I did another one uh, in April, and then I think I did another one before the draft. Mm-hmm. And this year, I will do late August slash early September, 
It'll be in the sortable board, and then it'll just be updated throughout. And as I get information, it'll just show up in there. So the reason I bring this up is that the titles of articles called Ridiculously or Ludicrously or April Edition, Mm -hmm. I don't think are going to exist because I think there will be one article to say, hey, this thing's here so you guys can find it. It'll be located at the top of the page, and here's some notes, you know, some text notes to go with this sort of grid of information. And then, you know, some guy pops up in November throwing 95 at like a scrimmage. Uh, maybe I'll tweet that he exists and he's on this list now, but I'll just put it on the list. Yeah, don't worry. So I don't, don't worry. Kylie's got it. Yeah, it's on there. And it's just, you know, like, oh, you could wait six months for someone to update their list because they have two updates and they'd like to have ten updates to update a list and be like, hey, I'll just update it as it happens. Isn't that nice? Why has no one done this before? Yeah. I don't know, but I'm going to stop thinking about it. Yeah. 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 Probably stop thinking about it. Yeah, I should just move on, shouldn't I? Yeah. Move on. Look at you. Worry about you. Worry about worry about your own uh, hip. Hip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. Well, thanks, Kylie. That's been uh, it's been great speaking with you. Yeah, and I I believe the percentage of uh, words that I've said that are actually going to be on the podcast is about thirty percent. It's low. It's pretty low, yeah. but it's been it's been. Did I say it was a pleasure speaking with you? I might have been lying. It, it's ago. been. We can confirm that. It's been. It, it has happened. But uh, but anyway, thank you for donating your time, at least. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and and next week we will have, hopefully, uh, uh, have gotten out of all of our systems this nonsense. Yeah. And uh, next week will be a little more orderly. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Uh, that has been, let's see, that has been Kyla McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 